But I want us to begin uh, in 1 Thessalonians, and we come this morning to what is really a letter of love. This is a letter of love from the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica, to a church that he had planted, and he had to continue his mission from God, so he couldn't stay there. He couldn't stay there very long. Uh, we don't know exactly how long he was in there. We know it was at least three weeks. Uh, the book of Acts, chapter 17, gives us that information, but probably a little bit more than three weeks, but we don't know how long. Uh, but he was concerned about them. He continued to care for them. He continued to want to see their growth and their encouragement. He wants this young church to be nourished and to be equipped for every good work. And so in the days before Zoom meetings uh, and TikToks and uh, your, you know, your Snapchats and Facebook Messenger, I guess if you're uncool and use that, because who, you know, who really used Yeah. Uh, and now that even that old-fashioned form of communication, email, right? Email's old-fashioned. That's how, that's how you know. Uh, except unless you, especially if you have, you know, an AOL or Hotmail address. I'm sorry if that's you here this morning. I'm just calling you out right now. But, but right, oh, email's old-fashioned. Uh, he does something even more old-fashioned, right? Because it was the days before all those. He, he writes to them. He writes a letter to them. And he writes to encourage and instruct them. And so today we're going to begin by receiving the book of 1 Thessalonians much in the same way it was received in the time that it was written and sent. Uh, and so we're going to read through it all. I know that's crazy. It's only five chapters, so I think we'll make it. But uh, once we do that, we're going to look at some of the context, and then we're going to see what Paul wants to direct their attention to in the very first verse. And so just in summary, as we think about our passage this morning, uh, Paul and his co-workers here are writing to God's church in Thessalonica to encourage them in and with the love, the grace, and the peace of God offered to them in Christ Jesus. And so... Uh, I'll go ahead and read for us 1 Thessalonians, and hear this, the word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, 
nor were the pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. But since we are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I Paul again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus as his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore whoever disregards this 
disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the air to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the, with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for our helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you in our oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So as we come to 1 Thessalonians, and I'll just give you a second there to process some of what you heard because there's a, there's a lot there, right? It's five chapters. And so... As you, as you think about what is going on in this letter, I hope that one of the things that you heard over and over again is Paul's heart for the Thessalonians, right? His heart for the church there. He loves them. He cares for them. He desires them. He wants to encourage them. He wants to instruct them. He wants to, he wants to see them mature and enjoy of Christ. Uh, where is 
the Thessalonian church. Well, that's a fun, fun fact, right? It's in Thessalonica. Right? That's where we get the name Thessalonians. It's in Thessalonica. And as you see there, there's mention of Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, Macedonia is the northern half of the Greek peninsula. And so this is where the church is. At the time that Paul is writing, which is going to be about AD 50 to 51, uh, this city is a little less than 400 years old. So much older than Maysville. Uh, even here in Maysville, right? Uh, It's an important Roman city politically and economically. It lies on one of the major trade routes, uh, the east-west trade routes, so it has a lot of trade passing through it. Paul himself, he comes to this city in his second missionary journey, uh, and his exit from there was fueled in much the same way that most of his exits were fueled out of various cities, persecution. Uh, There was persecution against Uh, Paul against the church, and so Paul had to move on. And in the midst of that persecution, right, he's concerned that they're not going to have the steadfastness, the perseverance uh, to continue on in the faith unless they receive some godly encouragement. So that's what he is doing in this letter. The only brief information we have about his time there in Thessalonica is in Acts 17. I mentioned that before. It's just a few verses, uh, a little more than a few, a literal few. Uh, and so uh, we, do, we really don't know much, uh, but we know that the church is comprised of both Jews and Greeks who believe in Christ, and it is forged in persecution. Uh, Paul was not directly persecuted, but uh, the uh, kind of mob forms and takes one of the church members and uh, hauls them into... Uh, the, the, before the judges and the, the magistrates, that kind of thing. And so it's forged in persecution. And considering the letter itself, there is little doubt in church history uh, that in, in scholarly history, right, and scholarly study of this, that this letter is written by Paul. They, it is written by Paul. It's attested to that. And we see that right in verse 1. Paul starts out, right? First, first word we see there, Paul. Um, and we see that it's also written with the help of some of his co-workers. Silvanus, who we probably know better in the book of Acts as Silas. So Silas being a shortened form of Silvanus. And Timothy, Timothy we know about from, of course, um, the book of Acts, but also Paul's letters to Timothy. Now if I asked you which, uh, which book came first, 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians, you'd probably say, well, that, it's in the name, Dale. It's in the name. Uh, but there is some good question about if that's true or not. In the history of the church, in the church canon, 1 Thessalonians is placed first. But there's good argument that it could be 2 Thessalonians was actually written first. The reality is that these two letters were probably written around the same period in a very short uh, period of time. So again, 80, 50, 51. And so... <clears throat> There's no definitive argument one way or the, the other. Uh, it doesn't necessarily matter one way or the other, uh, except for as we get into issues of eschatology, the study of the end times, uh, because those both raise issues in these letters. But that's enough background information. Let's get into our first verse, which is the verse we're going to look at this morning. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Again, so who's writing here? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Uh, Paul 
and, and it's only in the letters to the Thessalonians that he does not qualify who he is. He doesn't give any title to who he is. A lot of times we see in the other letters, right, he says Paul, an apostle. Paul, a bondservant of Christ, right? He gives kind of some explanation, but not in Thessalonians. It could be because it's uh, the, the Thessalonian letters were some of the very first letters he's written, so maybe he just doesn't feel the need to, uh, to explain it. It could also be that because the Thessalonians accepted who Paul is, that Paul is um, one who is uh, faithful, that he has no need to explain who he is, right? That, that they accept Paul for who he is. They accept Paul that he is um, a faithful apostle of Christ. And so uh, he doesn't need to explain his relationship uh, to them. They understand it and they accept it. Uh, he did not need to say that. Again, Sylvanus, we know as Silas. Uh, who is Silas? Acts 15.22 tells us uh, a little bit more information. Uh, Acts 15.22 says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders of the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. Uh, so if you remember the context, Acts chapter 15, there's a council meeting by the Jerusalem church over the issue of whether or not Christians, especially Gentile Christians, have to follow the law of Moses or not, especially as it relates to the issue of circumcision. And so uh, the determination of the church is no, that there's a very few things that they're going to uh, command that the churches follow, the, even the Gentile churches. And they send a letter uh, with Paul and Barnabas, but also some other leading men. So Silas, Silvanus, is a leading man out of the church of Jerusalem. And so he's sent along. And again, we know Timothy. Uh, Timothy is one who is uh, a close helper to Paul. Uh, we know a lot about Timothy from the letters, right? That he was a faithful follower, uh, that he was a faithful co worker, and that indeed uh, Paul felt a lot of um, warm affection towards Timothy as a father towards a son in the faith. And so we know who's doing the writing, but to whom are they writing? And again, we know to the church of the Thessalonians. Uh, Church is a common word in our day, and it has some very specific meanings. So when we think of church, we think of a body of people, body of believers. We think of a building, like a location, right? I'm going to go to church. What does that mean? We're going to go to X place, X address. Uh, Or we can also use it in the way of uh, church is a time. A date and time, right? Church is Sunday at 10.30 a.m. I'm going to go to church, meaning I'm going to go to a place at a certain date and at a certain time. Uh, So that's what we think of. Uh, But in the Greek, the meaning of the word is much more general than that. It just means assembly. It's just an assembly. Uh, And it is a common Greek word. Uh, It was used in the political sense uh, back in the time of Paul which is meant a general assembly, so a, a political assembly. So if everyone, you know, uh, today we might have uh, Republicans or Democrats or maybe the Green Party, if you're into that kind of thing, right? Uh, Green Party get together and have a little meeting, right? That's an assembly. That's an ecclesia, ecclesia, right? A, a church. Uh, it just means assembly, a gathering. 
But Paul qualifies this word, right? He says to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is not writing to the city as a whole. Paul is not writing to a political subdivision of that city. Paul is writing to a people. Uh, he, he is writing to a specific people. And they weren't Jewish people alone. If Paul wanted to write to the Jewish people, he would use the more common word, synagogue. Right? So Paul is intentionally using a non-Jewish word because he's writing to a people that are both Jewish and Greek. He's writing to the body of believers of the Father and the Son. They have God as their Father, right? In God the Father. Not only that, they have Jesus as their Lord in Christ, right? In the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus being the man, right? The God-man. Jesus who lived and died and was raised again from the grave. This Jesus who is Lord, right? It says the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be Lord? But master, sovereign, ruler, king, supreme, that what he says demands obedience, that who he is demands obeisance, uh, demands us to humble ourselves before him. And not only that, but he is also Christ or Messiah, the anointed one. This, this is not Jesus' last name, right? This is not Jesus Christ as I am Dale Marlowe. But this is his title. Christ is his title. This is Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. The one who fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies. The promises that God has made. It's, it's a very specific meaning as it comes to the scriptures. right? It, this is the one who has come to set the captives free. The one to give sight to the blind and, and hearing to the deaf to raise the dead. Jesus does this work not merely in the physical realm, as he did during his earthly ministry, but predominantly he comes to build a spiritual kingdom. Luke 17, verses 20 through 21 says this. Luke 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, that is Jesus, answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. No, right, look for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So, so right, what does Jesus say there? It's not, look, here it is. It's not, look, there it is. But it's here in the midst of you. So these are the assembly who has God as their father and Jesus as their Lord in Christ. The kingdom of God is here established in the city of Thessalonica. Uh, Calvin says this in his commentaries. We may, however, at the same time infer from it that a church is to be sought for only where God presides and where Christ reigns, and that, in short, there is no church, but what is founded upon God is gathered on the auspices of Christ and is united in his name. So what is he saying there in his commentary? And what, what does it mean here for us as we think of this, right? There is no church. There is no church unless God is their God. There is no church unless they are gathered in the name of Christ. There are many people who go by the name church, who say they're churches. 
but they have neither God as their Father, nor Jesus as their Lord in Christ. They are not churches. And so, why is it so important we spend so much time, I just spend a lot of time, a lot of breath, a lot of air, a lot of hot air, uh, about the name of Jesus? Why is it important? Just what Calvin implies there, and what we have to see is that Paul here is making not just an offhand remark, but an intentional theological statement. He is saying something of that assembly that is gathered in the city of Thessalonica. They are God's people. And you, if you're hearing this, have God as your Father and Christ Jesus as your Lord, you too are one of God's people. You are chosen by God to this. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. And he goes on to say why it is He knows that. But they are chosen. You are chosen if you have God as your Father and Christ Jesus as your Lord. So this verse, this first verse, this opening verse is more than just about the address. Who this is to, right? It's much more than that. It is an identification not of a, just a mere, I want to make sure it gets to the right people, but it is an identification of who they are. And to these he says, in the very opening verse, grace to you and peace. So this is a traditionally styled Pauline greeting, right? And he is saying two things here. First, in a traditional Greek letter, you would open up and say, greeting. Or tidings, right? We we do that. We see that, right? Greetings. Hello. Good to see. Good to see you, right? But instead of using the traditional Greek style, he indeed, in, instead here says grace. And so, what is grace, right? We have to ask ourselves the question because we, especially if we've been in church, uh, we sang about it this morning, right? I think there's a couple songs there where we probably. Heard the word grace, but what do we mean by grace? What does that mean? What does that, what does that entail? Well, it's an undeserved gift. It's an unearned goodness or kindness. It's getting something you don't deserve. It's favor. And for the Christian, for the one who has God as their Father and Jesus Christ as their Lord, grace here is not about Paul giving his favor to the Thessalonians. No, this grace is about God giving his favor, right? It's like what he says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which may be familiar to us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Grace is all that immense and undeserved favor which God has shown his people. It is grace which saves us from our sins. It is God's grace alone that we can meet here this morning. It is God's grace alone that we can have any hope. It is God's grace shown to us in the coming of His Son, His atoning death on the cross, and His victorious resurrection. What grace has God shown you? Think about that for a moment. What grace has God shown you? Thank God for that grace. Thank God for that favor that He has shown to you. And even if you are in the midst of sorrow and mourning, even if you are in the midst of a difficult situation, you, if you are in Christ, have more grace than you even realize, more grace in store for you than you can even realize. We will not understand the extent 
of God's grace until we are in heaven. We will not see it. We'll not understand it. But in heaven, we will be able to look back over the course of our life and see all of the evidences of the favor of God upon our lives. And even as we have eternity before us, we will experience and learn and know more and more the grace of God. What grace we will understand in that moment when we see our Savior and when we shed off these corruptible bodies and put on the incorruptible. When God is our light. When we have no need for sun or moon or stars because God is in our midst and is indeed our very light because Jesus Christ shines and outshines the very sun. So grace to you may seem like a throwaway. It may seem just like, oh, it's just a customary greeting, right? We do that a lot. When we greet someone else, what do we do? We say, hey, how are you? We don't actually want to know how they are, right? And indeed, if they start telling us how they are, it's a little awkward, right? It's a, it's a little strange if they start saying, well, you know, last night I almost had a heart attack and my wife's been bothering me and all that. Right? We don't want to hear that. We just want to hear them say, good, how are you? And then we say, good, back. Right? That's our customary greeting uh, in our culture. But this is not a customary greeting. This is not a throwaway. Because brothers and sisters in Christ, grace is everything for us. Grace is everything for us. Without God's grace towards us, we are lost, we are dead, we are condemned, we are judged, And we are sitting under the divine frown. The favor of God, however. His grace. The light of His countenance. The joy of God towards us. Strikes us with awe. You see that? God's grace fills us with awe. And all the more so. When we understand truly how vile and wicked... We are. How undeserving we are of His favor. So grace to you and peace. Peace is the traditional Hebrew greeting here. Uh, it would be in the Hebrew, shalom. You may have heard that, uh, that word before, right? Shalom, peace. In the context of the Old Testament, peace has at its foundation, uh, has its foundation here in a world that is at turmoil. Right? Think about... Uh, and, and this may be hard for us, I think, too. But think about, put yourself in, in the place of, uh, in some of the Old Testament stories, what do you have going around you? Turmoil, right? War. You never know if in the morning you're going to wake up and you're going to look out on the horizon and you're going to see an army there ready to come and to pillage and rape and kill and destroy. Right? Why did the cities of old need walls and gates because life was not peace. So they longed for peace. They looked for peace. They knew that God promised peace. David opens up Psalm 4, for instance, with a cry that he says, God, would you hear me? Would you deliver me from my enemies? And he ends it this way in Psalm 4, 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell 
and safety. Peace. Not fear, not strife, not war, not worry, but peace. Rest. And even today, we long for peace, right? We long for times of strife to end. We long for stress to fade away. We look for peace. We want peace. We here in America do not fear necessarily armies coming and capturing our town. I don't think we fear that about the city of Maysville, right? We have a wall, but that's to keep the river out. It's not to keep the armies out. Right? We don't really fear that one day we may have a missile come rocketing into our, our neighborhood and killing us all. We don't have the fear of other elements of war that many others around the world do, but we do have our own strife, right? We do have our own strife. We see it in our families. Do we have strife in our families? Do we have strife in our jobs? And especially in this time of uh, the coronavirus, right? We, we see this strife between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, the masked and the unmasked, right? Not even in just in our jobs, but in our, our schools and our communities, right? What is happening in our country is turmoil and strife, not of war, but of division and disagreement. And I don't know about you, but I want peace. I don't want to have to worry at the next presidential election, is our country going to be whole? Or are we going to have to start having the conversation about seceding from the Union, right? To go back 100 and 150 years, 200 years to the, our very beginning. And as much as we want that kind of peace, that is not the peace we primarily need. No, it, it is not the peace that Paul here is talking about. Because he lived in a time of turmoil, right? Remember, who is the, the Thessalonian church to whom he is writing to? What is their context? One of persecution. But Paul's not primarily concerned about that. Because the, the reality is, we need peace most with God. James 4.4 says it this way, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And the reality is that outside of God's work in Christ Jesus in us, we are at war, not with the world around us, but with God himself, with our creator, with the one who made us. And some may object to that and say, well, we're not at war with God. We like God well enough. We just want to do our own thing. But notice what James said there, right? Friendship with the world. Friendship with the evil system of this world. Friendship with the things that the world loves, which is under the command and the power of the evil one. Friendship with that is enmity with God. Is to make God an enemy And how many there are in our day who in pretense say that they are seeking God when they're really friends with the world. How many there are within churches that make friends with the world. They love, they applaud the things in this world which are opposed to God in His ways. And there are many today who preach peace 
as those did in the days of Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah 6, 13 through 15. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punishment, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. There is much in the prophets about those who call themselves the people of God who are not the people of God. The book of Hosea is one such book about that, where the people of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, say, well, we're God's people. And God says to them, you are not my people. I am not your God. You do not have my grace, and I will not bless you. Because all that you do is not in accord with what I command, but you're just like the rest of the world. Right? There are many today who presume that they are friends with God when they love and embrace the things that God hates. And I want to be very clear about that too. Right? We cannot say that we love God and love those things that He hates. Don't be fooled by that. Because there are many who call themselves preachers and teachers. There are churches whose goal is to embrace that which God says, I do not love this. I do not like it. I will punish this. This is condemnation. This causes judgment. Peace only comes through God's grace. And it is only by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ applied to us by the Holy Spirit that indeed we can have that peace. And what does Christ tell his disciples? For instance, at the time uh, that his death is drawing near in John 16, verses 32-33. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have strife, turmoil, no, peace. That you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The peace that we primarily need is not peace in this world, because in this world we will have tribulation. Uh, One of the most remarkable stories we see in the book of Acts, for instance, is the Apostle Paul. He is stoned to death, or at least near death. He rises, he gets up, and he goes and he instructs the people, and he says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Do you think Paul understood What he said when he said it? I'd say for someone who just got stoned to death, he understood what he was saying. And that was not his concern. Why did he continue? Why didn't he hide? Why didn't he run from it? Why didn't he just say, you know what, maybe this isn't for me? Because he had peace with God. He understood what the peace of God, what it called him to. He understood that the message of reconciliation that he was given, that others needed to hear it. He wasn't concerned primarily about his physical health, but about the eternal souls and lives 
of those who needed to hear the reconciliation, the peace of God. In this world, there is trouble, and that's plain enough. We see it everywhere, right? We see it. We feel it. We experience it. But in Jesus, there is peace. There is peace because He has overcome this world. There is peace because He has made an end to sin. There is peace because death is defeated. There is peace because He has taken the record of death that stood against us with its legal demand and nailed it to the cross. There is peace because He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf that we might have the righteousness of God. And so Paul begins his letter here, this letter of love to this people assembled in the city of Thessalonica, in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he immediately wants to remind them, grace, God's favor to you, and peace. If you are in Christ Jesus, you too have grace and peace. God's favor rests upon you, not by anything that you have earned. You certainly don't deserve it. You deserve the unmitigated wrath of God because there is enough sin in you to destine you for eternal punishment. But as God has chosen you out of this world, He has shown you the magnitude of His grace. And this, brothers and sisters in Christ, should should cause you to stand in awe and wonder of this great God. It should cause your heart to sing It should cause you to worship. It should cause you to explode with joy that goes forth and beckons others to come and to experience this life-giving favor and peace that God offers. The peace that surpasses all understanding is yours. You're no longer at war with God. You are made friends of God, more than friends, sons and daughters. And what does God do for his sons and daughters? You are at peace, and in Christ, who has overcome this world, you will have victory. Sin and death are defeated. The evil one, though he rages, yet, though he accosts us, he will be silenced and crushed forever. In grace and in peace, the Father has gathered you in Christ Jesus by his Holy Spirit. But what of those who do not trust in Jesus Christ, who have not confessed Him as Savior and Lord? What of those who love this world? Well, if this is you here today, you are not in a position of peace. You are not in a position of favor. You have no hope of grace. No, instead you are under divine condemnation. Because while you may experience the applause and the smiles of this world, that will mean very little when you stand before the throne of God and He looks at you and He proclaims condemnation, an eternal sense of judgment and punishment against you. And if that makes you balk, if you think that's unfair, it is only because you do not realize the extent of your sin. You do not realize how evil your heart really is, how evil sin is. Even the smallest of it is before a holy God. But as it is still today, as you still draw breath, you may yet repent. 
you may yet turn to God from your evil way and be reconciled unto God. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, came not merely to teach us the right path, but to die. He came to die the death of a sinner, though he himself was without sin, and that those who believe in him, who trust in him, who look to him, might not perish but have eternal life. And so if you but confess your sin to God, if you confess to to him the evil of your ways, if you confess to him, if you call out to him and say, God, I need the work of Christ in my heart, you may yet have grace and peace that lasts for all eternity. And you too may know the magnificence of his favor towards his people. You too can be free from the debt of your sin and from the punishment due the evil and the wicked. And so today, while it is still today, look to Christ Jesus and believe in him. Turn to him and be saved. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, as we, as we consider your word this morning, as we consider this letter of love, indeed, the, the entirety of the scripture, a letter of love unto us wicked sinners. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring about conviction in us of our sin. Father, that we would confess our sin before you and we would know with the certainty and the assurance that your scripture provides that is rooted and grounded in your character. God, that we would know that we can have the forgiveness of our sins and that we no longer stand in relation to you as enemies and as at enmity, but Lord, we stand in relation to you at peace. That we have peace not because we have earned it, not because we deserve it, not because it is ours by right, but because of your favor, your grace towards us in Christ. Oh, Father, we pray that we would have a deeper understanding of your grace and your peace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, that we would understand that we are yours. And that as such, everything else changes. Oh, Father, we look unto you today and we pray that you would grant us your grace and your peace. To you we pray, O God, our Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.